0: Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. Forced migration is one of the critical issues of our time. One out of 110 people in the world currently lives in displacement, either caused by conflict, violence, or persecution, or natural and environmental disasters. Forced migration is more common for already vulnerable populations and it often creates tensions in the countries or regions that host such migrants. Today we're going to talk about displacement in the South Asian region, where questions of identity, religion, and history come into play. In this age of radicalism and polarization, we see the religious persecution and displacement of the Rohingya from Myanmar to surrounding countries such as India, as well as tensions rising from internally displaced people within India. One such internally displaced people are the Kashmiri Bandits, who fled violence in the Indian-administered state of Jammu and Kashmir during the beginning of the 1990s. Until this day, their future and status remains unclear. Our guest today is journalist RTT Kusing, who is currently senior assistant editor at The Times of India. She has worked as a reporter and editor for more than 15 years, focusing on issues of conflict, war, and terror. She was born and brought up in the conflict-torn state of Jammu and Kashmir and returned many years later to report on the politics, violence, governance, and human histories that have shaped the conflict. With her, we will discuss the history and future of forced displacement in South Asia. How do questions of religion and identity come into play? And most importantly, with the rise of extreme thinking, how can we break this cycle of intolerance?
1: Uh, Welcome to our Global Futures Podcast, Arti. It's great to have you with us. Uh, And as a journalist, uh, you've you've covered the conflicts in Jammu and uh, Kashmir. For a number of years, uh, you've dealt uh, and experienced uh, with the issue of forced displacement firsthand. There's quite a a lot going on in the region right now in in terms of uh, refugees and forced displacement chiefly of course right now in in Myanmar and uh, we're interested in the cross-border flows coming uh, coming out of the Myanmar conflict, uh, especially the case of the Rohingya where you have the denial of livelihood and citizenship and uh, big questions about power, identity, religion, gender that uh, come up. So could you explain a little bit uh, the case of the Rohingyas uh, and how India deals with uh, cross-border refugee flows uh, with regards uh, to the refugees from, from Myanmar and how that has played out.
2: Oh, well, thank you for inviting me to this conversation. Before I explain uh, the Rohingya case, I think it's important to uh, actually deal with the history and a little bit of uh, background of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, Because identity and religion are at the heart of the political or the displacement crisis that the subcontinent or the entire region is facing for a long time. Without going into anthropological and sociological reasons uh, of displacement, which is... uh, historical and also uh, evolutionary and in many ways uh, also an uh, economic situation that has you know uh, sort of uh, uh, been at the core of human civilizational problem. The reality of the Indian subcontinent is that India was partitioned on the very basis of identity and religion. Two nation states were created, uh, India and Pakistan on the basis of two nation theory of Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Iqbal. And uh, the partition actually led to a massive displacement and uh, genocide of people in the subcontinent. The scars of which, the effects of which can be felt even today. Uh, Rohingya issue in itself is connected to the very idea of the creation of a state for Muslims in the subcontinent, Rohingya people uh, in 1947, uh, I think, did go to Muhammad Ali Jinnah uh, seeking uh, uh, seeking his support for seeking Jinnah's support for having uh, autonomous uh, Muslim states in uh, in Myanmar. Uh, Jinnah, of course. Um, Rejected their plea and did not uh, come forward to help them, uh, which eventually led uh, the Muslims in uh, in uh, Myanmar to come together. The jihadists and the Islamists uh, over time came together to uh, fight the Myanmar state, which was uh, you know again a pro, uh, you know product of the British imperialism in the subcontinent. Uh, the Allied forces and the Axis forces in the World War II. Um, incidentally, Myanmar was uh, siding with the Axis forces at the time. Uh, the uh, Muslim, um, the Muslims in Myanmar were actually a force, uh, were on the side of the British. And the British, uh, in fact, promised them that they were going to give them a Muslim state, which did not happen. Uh, Jinnah rejected and, uh, it's, it's bizarre that, you know, Myanmar was on the uh, side of Japs, Japanese, and uh, Muslims were on the side of the British. So in this, uh, in this scenario, you know, uh, a, a crisis uh, sort of erupted in the region, and over time, you know, this problem has now sort of uh, become so huge that the entire world is focused on it because of the massive number of uh, refugees coming out of Myanmar and seeking refuge in in the neighboring countries from Bangladesh uh, to India. Rohingyas uh, are just, you know, 40,000. Uh, that's the estimate that the government has given. As of today, there are only 40,000 Rohingya refugees in India. But this has become a very critical issue in India. And in fact, you know, um, it has drawn a lot of censure from the world the way the Modi government has taken a very uh, tough stand on Rohingya refugees. Now, I'm not a Modi government supporter or an admirer, but one has to understand this conflict uh, in, in its historical context. To begin with, India actually, you know, truly represents the melting pot of the world. It has accepted historically and traditionally accepted refugees of all kinds. Um, if you look at 1971 war uh, in Bangladesh, that led to 10 million Bangladeshis flee bangladesh and enter india and india accepted them and this included both muslims and hindus if you look at afghanistan you know when taliban took over in afghanistan um, uh, around 60000 afghans uh, came and sought refuge in india india again accepted them if you look at tibetans 150000 refugees from tibet you know came uh, after the dalai lama fled the country and sought refuge in india Um, Look at Sri Lankan uh, Tamils who fled the civil war in Sri Lanka, you know, when the Sri Lankan state uh, uh, went for uh, cleaning up, uh, so to say, um, you know, action against uh, Tamil uh, rebels. Then, uh, if you also look at you know the uh, dwindling minorities in Pakistan, you know who've been uh, sort of uh, one massacred and through through a, systemi- a systemic systemic uh, program in Pakistan. Again, I mean India has been receptive to refugees. And what
1: what makes the Rohingya different? Yeah, then?
2: so that's where I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm trying to explain that why is why are Rohingyas different? Rohingyas are different. I have been a supporter of Rohingya refugees in the country. I mean, despite the fact that I've drawn a lot of criticism uh, for my stand, I have come out openly in their support that India must give them refuge. But the problem here is that Rohingya refugees are also infiltrated by the, um, the, uh, the terrorist organization, um, Uh, Arakan, Rohingya uh, Salvation Army, which is uh, led by um, a um, a Pakistani in a way. He was born in Pakistan. The leader of the group was born in Pakistan. He was raised in Saudi Arabia, but he's leading an Islamist movement for uh, Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, Uh, which incidentally, um, there are reports uh, by Reuters and other agencies that um, ARSA has links with pakistani isi arsa also has had links with al-qaeda and other terror groups so and india has been dealing with terror for the last 30 years india has had a massive problem of cross-border terror Uh, it's um, it has hostile neighbor like pakistan on the one hand it has an um, somewhat uh, you know friendly uh, enemy, uh, China on the other hand, and then you have a major refugee crisis from Bangladesh. So India is now looking at a scenario where uh, ARSA, funded by Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, is going to create more problems for people within the country uh, so i wouldn't say india has suddenly turned uh, xenophobic or intolerant of refugees i think there are major security concerns uh, but i would still uh, think that you know india can um, actually scan all the refugees and um, give uh, you know all the help and uh, refuge to genuine refugees yeah thank you um,
1: you you've talked uh, already about historically that india has been quite w- very welcoming uh, to uh, refugees uh, there has also been a lot of internal displacement uh, in in india and uh, you've worked uh, on this uh, and uh, on the conflicts in jammu and kashmir in the in the 1990s and maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about uh, those cases of uh, displacement uh, how they have played out uh, over time from the 1990s especially the kashmiri pandits uh, what's what's their status within india now and what can we learn from this experience
2: well india has had um, an internal uh, you know displacement of uh, people since 1947 uh, if you actually look at the uh, displaced people in during the partition itself, fourteen million people uh, were displaced between you know um, Pakistan's and and India, and even 1971. Because fundamentally, it's the same subcontinent. People are getting displaced within this region, but. Uh, after 1971 if there was a major uh, displacement of people again based on the two nation theory again based on communal identity it was in Jammu and Kashmir. It happened in the Muslim-majority Kashmir Valley, where a minuscule uh, Kashmiri Pandit, Hindu minority, used to live for almost 5,000 years. Uh, They were uh, targeted and attacked and driven out of Kashmir by Islamist insurgents in 1890. And I became part of the exodus of this minuscule community out of Kashmir. Uh, my parents, my ancestors um, came from Kashmir, they lived in Kashmir, I grew up, I was born and brought up in Kashmir. And um, in 1989, 90, we were, my family and uh, all my relatives, we were threatened uh, by Islamist uh, terrorist groups, uh, we, and we were asked to leave. Uh, it was a systemic uh, ethnic cleansing um, program uh, against uh, the minorities. And uh, three hundred thousand, uh, uh, you know, Kashmiri Pands, thats the estimate of various agencies and various uh, uh, and the community itself—were uh, driven out of Kashmir. Uh, majority of them um, got displaced to the southern region of the state, which is called Jammu region. Uh, but the rest, uh, the rest were, you know, spread out and fled to various uh, parts of India, from Delhi to Pune and Pune to ba- Bombay and uh, Calcutta and uh, Gujarat and Rajasthan. Uh, the entire community, community is dispersed and uh, living uh, as refugees within their own country their status as of today is that uh, i would say majority are now sort of rehabilitated uh, not because you know the government or some major you know m- country or United Nations came forward to, to help them, but by sheer hard work and by you know uh, their own efforts, uh, the majority is now rehabilitated and settled. There was some kind of help from the government of India at the time, and there is still some kind of help uh, even right now, um, but uh, I would say the majority is rehabilitated and resettled, across India only because of their own efforts. However, <clears throat> there is a tiny, I think, not more than 2,000 Kashmiri Pandits who are still living in the valley, uh, who did not flee, who chose to stay back. Uh, so I would say that um, as of today, this remains a displaced community. Kashmiri Pandits remain a displaced community. But on the on the verge of extinction because the community has been assimilated by the larger population in India and their cultural, their ethnic identity has sort of uh, eroded and uh, it has changed in the last 30 years. So you could say that um, this displaced community is actually vanishing, and that's what displacements do. That's what uh, global displacements or regional displacements do. In the end, uh, smaller minority communities, they get assimilated and they just evaporate from the history books, and that's what's happening.
1: Thank you for sharing this. There's been some discussion on whether there should be a return of the Kashmiri Pandits to uh, Kashmir, uh, Jammu. Would you, you know, since your person that's your personal story. What do you make of these uh, discussions?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, these discussions are good for, uh, I would say, uh, air-conditioned uh, rooms because the reality on the ground is very different. Uh, I've been a journalist for the last 17 years, and I've gone back to Kashmir Valley from where my family was evicted and from where I was evicted. I went back as a journalist, and I did stories uh, across communities and across uh, regions uh, in the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, The fact is that the government did try to send back Kashmiri pundits to the valley several times. Uh, but uh, initially, uh, every time the government uh, spoke of their return, um, the terrorists responded it with a massacre. In 1997, I think Sangrampura massacre happened. Uh, then came Wandhama massacre, and then came Nadimar massacre. Uh, so every time there was a government uh, debate or government consideration for their return, uh, there was massive violence. Uh, in response to the to the government stand, um, however, mm, the former prime minister uh, Manmohan Singh did actually uh, send Kashmiri pundits to the valley under a certain employment package and s- Camps were set up for these uh, you know sort of refugees. Uh, uh, double refugees because once you moved out of kashmir and then you went back to kashmir not in you, to your homes but to camps so there are camps uh, right now uh, which are operational and existing in kashmir but they are like uh, they're like ghettos because uh, they're walled and uh, sanitized ghettos because you cannot really interact with the rest of uh, the community. There is still massive hostility uh, towards um, Kashmiri Pandits. A lot of camps I went to um, live in fear and uh, fear psychosis and insecurity. Every time there's a crisis, every time there's a violence on the streets of Kashmir, these particular camps get targeted again. So with stone, you know, stone pelters and uh, and militants, um, you know, rowing around. So uh, I would say the situation that led to ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri pundits, the situation, the atmosphere that led to uh, their, uh, you know, exodus from Kashmiri uh, from Kashmir, hasn't really changed. So it sounds really really nice to your you know ears that yeah we must return to Kashmir but has the atmosphere um, changed is there a conducive environment for the return and rehabilitation i would say no and um for that to happen i think you know Kashmir itself needs to resolve as a society what it wants whether it wants to be plural and secular And, um, you know, heterogeneous as it used to be historically. Um, There was a time, you know, where um, Hindus and Muslims lived um, peacefully and in harmony. There was coexistence. The whole idea of coexistence has uh, completely vanished from Kashmir in the last 30 years. boys who were born in say 1990 they have no understanding and no experience first-hand experience of living with minorities with living with the other so the other has vanished and disappeared and uh, I don't think a return of Kashmiri pundits in the immediate future is a possibility
1: I mean, you give the example now of, of this kind of sectarianism and the denial of peaceful coexistence of, of different communities based on the uh, experience in, in Kashmir that's not a singular case in India and uh, there's a growing concern with kind of sectarianism and uh, the lack of kind of empathy if if you will to, to live you know to be willing to live uh, with uh, the other you've yourself called uh, for the way forward being mutual and not selective empathy in this kind of growing climate of national you know hindu nationalism sectarianism mm. from not just hindu yeah. side i mean kashmir yeah. clearly tells yeah. a story yeah. that yeah. <laughs> the only is certainly hindu nationalism is not the, mm. the the only problem how much of a chance do you think your call for mutual and not selective uh, empathy stands these days
2: well uh, we are living in in very uh, interesting and also um I would say radical times. This is an age of radicalism, and this radicalism is not uh, limited to one community. It is, uh, it's across communities. It's uh, both uh, among Hindus and Muslims, the two major communities of the subcontinent. Uh, but if you look at the rest of the world uh, too, whether it's Europe or whether it's uh, the West or whether it's uh, UK itself, uh, there has been a rise in the extreme thinking. And one has to understand those reasons that how we got here, how did we arrive to this time where uh, everyone is sort of uh, talking the language of intolerance and the language of uh, bigotry. Now, if we begin to talk about that. It might sound as if I'm justifying, uh, you know, bigotry and intolerance, but I'm not because I think uh, to correct something, one has to first understand what the problem is. Uh, To, um, you know, do a course correction, one has to understand what the course is. Uh, So uh, my point is that, yes, there has to be in the end, at the end of the day, you have to have empathy for the other. If you begin to have bigotry, and if you begin to see the other as the other, um, you will end up and highlighting this world. Uh, the fundamental endeavor of human civilization is to have peace, and you cannot reach peace unless and until you have empathy. Um, I think there are some shining examples of empathy. Uh, we need to really look harder. Um, the fact that you know um despite several incidents and several um i would say communal violent incidents in india india remains a secular country not only in the constitution not only on papers but uh, the fact that you know, despite um, the fact that you know, an entire community was driven out of Kashmir, a minority community was driven out of Kashmir, we did not see the backlash from the same community. Uh, and I take pride in that. My uh, community, my parents did not teach me revenge. We did not learn that we need to take up arms to uh, settle scores. We were instead taught and raised with values of tolerance and forgiveness. So I would say that, you know, um, and this example I like to give again and again because uh, if you do not uh, take this example in consideration, uh, you will end up having another partition. You will end up you know, having around one to two million people were killed in the partition. Uh, around 300,000 to three million people were killed in 1971 uh, when Bangladesh was created. Pakistani military and Islamists in Bangladesh, they, they raped around 200 000 to 400,000 women uh, during 1971. These sounds, you know, these are statistics, but these are real lives, these, Uh, things sort of leave scars, not for one generation, but several generations. This, you know, this is the potential material for perpetual conflict and perpetual bigotry because you will never be able to overcome violence, the scars of violence. So, uh, So I keep, you know, reminding people that empathy is the only recourse. You have to forgive and you have to uh, also address, um, you know, why should I only talk about Kashmiri pundits? There have been human rights violations in Kashmir. A lot of people were um, killed by security forces, uh, extrajudicial killings, and uh, there were some rapes as well. And if India does not have empathy for those people, who were killed who the innocent people who were killed and who were killed for no reason, uh, those innocent people tomorrow are going to turn against you. they are going to you know perpetuate that you know vicious cycle of hatred and bigotry that's why I keep you know talking about it because that's what my parents taught me.
1: Thank you very much for sharing your perspective and your experience with us RT uh, in the coming years I think. Uh, the issue of forced displacement will only grow with other factors like climate change coming into play and I think uh, the examples you gave and the case for empathy you made from a very personal experience is a very powerful one to guide us in order to be able to deal with it in a humane kind of way so thank you very much for joining us on this podcast
2: Thank you so much, Thanks. thanks
0: This edition of the Global Futures podcast was presented by me, Joël Sandu, and my colleague, Torsten Benner. It was produced by Sonia Sugrubova with support from Jill van from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was RTT Kuseng. The Global Governance Futures program brings together exceptional young professionals to look ahead 10 years and think of ways to better address global challenges. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.